Welcome to episode 311 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Something amazing happened recently. NPR interviewed me on how to master in-person networking. A segment was then shared on All Things Considered and The Morning Edition on NPR stations across the country. My croissants versus bagels networking strategy, a very sticky concept, was shared hundreds, maybe even a thousand times across social media platforms. I found out folks are teaching my concept, hopefully with full attribution, all around the world including Germany. I'd love to share my tips with you. Just go to robbysamuels.com forward slash NPR to listen to the episode and learn how to make events less awkward and more rewarding. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest knows that no one ever wishes they'd spent more time at the office or pines for work that didn't inspire them. Her specialty is making sales fun as she helps women heal their relationship with money. She's spoken at women's conferences all over the world and has helped hundreds of women start and grow businesses they love. She spent 15 years navigating the male-dominated world of tech. Along the way, she worked at Lifetime Television's new media department, worked hand-in-hand with Marion Williamson on her community site and digital offering, The Miracle Matrix, and worked at IAC, where she managed a P&L worth hundreds of millions of dollars. She's the voice behind the Game On Girlfriend podcast, and she's known for her weekly Sour Uncut TV show on YouTube and live Coffee with Coach streaming video conversations on Monday mornings. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Walton. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Robbie. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun. You read that intro, and I'm like, who's he talking about? That's amazing, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, wow, we forget what we do. Yeah, so the, goal, the goal of a good intro is that credibility of, oh, I should pay attention. And I, I think you've got all that. I love that you've been able to join us from your place outside of New York City. And um, I was born and raised in Long Island, so it sounds like we're kind of in the same area of the world. I am thrilled to have you on here. And as you know, this is a show about building strong connections, strong networks, but the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? You know, it's interesting for me, leadership is anything that inspires action. I think any human or or book phrase, I'm not a big fan of memes because it's too short and out of context, but anything like that that can really inspire action. So there's being inspired, there's getting excited, and then there's taking action. And I think true leadership must include action. That part just has to be there. And you are going to laugh at me. Do you know when I realized I could lead? This is the craziest story ever. I'm so excited to share it, and I don't think I ever have. But I was working at a startup. And I was the second person that the founder hired. We were working with Marianne Williamson. We were working with the Agape Church in Los Angeles. We were doing all these really cool things. And we were out to lunch. And throughout my life, I knew I had this ability to like sort of sense what other people needed. I don't know. I I don't know how else to describe it, but I could like sort of feel it, right? And I'm in this deep conversation with our CTO at my table. And I see the CEO over here and he's kind of reaching around. He's over to my right and he's kind of reaching around looking for stuff. And um, 
I pick up my ketchup bottle and I hand it to him without breaking the conversation. And he looked at me and he goes, that's why she's number two and went and sat down somewhere else. And I was like, oh, I think I can do stuff. And I know that sounds crazy. That's not necessarily a leadership moment, but it was this, this minute where I realized I'm deeply connected to the people I work with and I care about them down to their needs of when they need ketchup. And not only did I know it, I knew to hand it to him and I didn't break the conversation. And that must sound crazy. And I don't mean to toot my own horn, but it was the moment I passed the ketchup. <laughs> I feel like I feel like past the ketchup is going to now take on all new meaning. <laughs> you know, we don't want to cut the mustard, but like past the ketchup, it's going to be a whole new phrase. And I hope that phrase inspires action because it is a great leadership quote. Well, it, there you go. We we got to turn it into a meme, Robbie. It's going to have no context, but we should turn it into a meme. Yeah. And then the action inspired is everyone was able to eat and conversations weren't interrupted. So that's what I took as the action. Amazing. <laughs> I'm having a flashback actually to the way I introduced myself to the, the New England chapter of the National Speakers Association at an annual conference, my first ever time going to this event. I'd never met anyone from my chapter. I run into someone at one of the break, breakout sessions. She says, come to this dinner. I show up, I happen to sit, because I always sit in the middle of the table. So I ended up sitting across from the leadership. And when the, when the check came, they started to tear their hair out because 20, 30, 40 people came in and out over like, you know, three hours. So how do we handle this? And I quietly took the check and went from person to person and took 20 or $40, depending on what they had gotten, and went to the waiter and got everything checked out and get, came back to them and was like, it's, it's done. And they were like, what? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's just too much stress. Let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> you see massive yeah. action in a moment when people need it, right? right. I'm telling you, Robbie. And, you and partly it. inspired because I hadn't, I ordered a small, tiny little salad and was trying not to spend a lot of money. <laughs> oh, dude, those days, right? I, I mean, remember those days. all remember those days. Yes. I remember those days. <laughs> so I want to dig back a little bit because I love your, first of all, your frame of leadership being any action or any anything that inspires action i love mm -hmm. i love sort of that frame but i think that who you are goes back even further so i'm always curious like what were you like on the playground you know <laughs> did you organize your friends or did you watch them did you run for office did your teachers see leadership potential who do you look up to like what, what were you like as a kid oh my gosh you're so good at this you must have had like over 300 shows or something that is such a great question um Yes, I was the first female student body president at my middle school. Yeah, that that's true. Um, now, I was raised, to take you back, I was raised, um, honestly, in the 1800s, which I know I'm not that old, but I kind of was. So I was raised in a little town called Sandy, Utah. Love you guys. Hi. So um, I was also raised Mormon. And I had five brothers, right? So some steps, some half. And um, I was I was a tomboy. Um the older boys kept me, brothers kept me from dating anyone. The younger ones beat me up. So there was a lot of like, feel really comfortable around men, that kind of, of a feeling, um, but was also told I couldn't work, right? Because women who work are selfish, that I should become a mother and nothing else. Um, and that was really what I was raised with. And so they, I, I did hear a lot from teachers. I was really good at math for some reason, which is so weird, but I loved math. It just made sense to me. Um, and there were lots of comments around math, science, and English where they were like, you know, you really should be doing more of this. You could do more with this. You could do more with this. And it was like, yeah, but I'm not supposed to. 
So it was this weird feeling. Um, And that sort of changed in high school a little bit when I started watching Doris Day movies, which sounds insane um, because there's so much sexism in there and the whole Rock Hudson thing. But (sighs) she was the only woman I saw because I wasn't really allowed to watch movies. There's still movies from the 80s I don't know very well. Um, And I lived this really sheltered life, but it was okay for me to watch Doris Day movies. And she was the only woman I saw who was working in New York City. Right. And she had always had a career. And she was always being duped by Rock Hudson, of course. But she had this career. She had an apartment in Manhattan. And I remember really thinking that was cool. Same with the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, and so I was the first woman in my family to go to college. I have 65 cousins, so that's a feat. Um, and I went to UCLA. And when I graduated from UCLA, I moved to Manhattan. And it was like, okay, let's see. Let's go. Let's do. And that's sort of how it all happened. Wow. There's a lot to unpack here. I mean, first of all, 65 cousins, raised Mormon with very specific um, parameters of what you were allowed to do based on some gender norms, gender stereotypes. Um, Teachers seeing potential in you that you're like, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do that. (laughs) Like that, that's great. But you know, it just means I'll be good at creating a house budget. That's you know, right. like, what else am I going to use this for? <laughs> Long division. Yay. You know? Uh-huh. And then that you start to see a little glimpse of what's possible. New York City becomes this, like, a different kind of Mecca. Like, I can't wait to get there. Um, but there must, it's a really interesting journey for you. I mean, what what led you to even run for office? You said middle school, right? Like, Yeah, middle school. <laughs> I was. Not I was even high school girl. yet. Yeah, yeah. No, I was the first girl. It was ninth grade. Um, I You know, I think my slogan, my nickname was Fred, um, and my slogan was Friendly Fred for Fun, and it was this idea that school didn't have to be so hard, um, and that I knew everybody. I think that was also something I started picking up on when it comes to leadership, is I didn't belong to a group. Um, There were the cool kids, the jockey kids, the preppy kids, the prissy kids, the the nerds, or pick pick a group we like to put people into, right? And I didn't have one, and I liked it that way, and that was very intentional, and I belonged to all of them if that makes sense. Like no one ever, if I were to sit down and be like, what are you doing here? Like, it wasn't like that. I was friends with everybody. And I think that's really what did it as I was like, wait a second, I think I might be able to do something here. Cause I don't, I, I, nobody owns me. And I know that sounds stupid, but at like that young of an age, but I'd sort of picked up on that, that that was a thing that I could kind of get in there and have some fun. And boy, did I. <laughs> I really did. I changed some things and had some fun. Wasn't very Mormon of me, but I did. Um, and I think it was just that idea that I could, I could um, somehow bring everybody into the same, into the same way of, of not necessarily seeing things, but into the same way of expressing. And that nothing ever had to be. This is really big for me. Is that we never have to be against each other. It's always us versus problem. And sometimes I say that and I cry, but it's really, it's really important to me that people get that it's not us versus each other. It's us versus a problem. It's a beautiful frame, us mm. versus problem. Yeah. Um, I can really relate to that piece you said about not having a specific click. Like I, I had that too. And actually I've interviewed quite a few guests who have had that similar experience of sort of floating between the clicks. And, and I personally, back then and even today, I loved mashing people together, like taking all the different groups and throwing a party and seeing what mm-hmm. happened. Um, but then the the other piece is just like your willingness to take what that was and then like do something with it. Like that's, again, it wasn't a path that was laid out for you. 
what were your parents thinking as you were doing this? Because, you know, they're of the Mormon faith. You've got a lot of brothers. There's a certain way that you should act. And particularly maybe in contrast to them, if you were running for office, I'm gathering you had some of their support. Like that takes a lot of effort. Yeah. They thought it was cute. Um, They thought it was cute. And at this point, my mother had been divorced for the second time. It's a long story. But anyway, so it was just me and my younger brother at home at this time. So it was just my mom, really. Um, Yeah, she thought it was cute. She goes, oh, that's so fun how you're so popular. It totally, she just, she used to say to me all the time, like, I don't understand you. I don't know where you came from. We were just so different, right? She was such a rule follower and just fit right in. And I kind of didn't. And so I think for her, it was, it was a little bit baffling, but it was cute. Yeah. And she wasn't restrictive or keeping you from doing it, but yeah, it it wasn't meant to be more than what it was. Right. right. Yeah. So, so when you're like 12, 13, you know, this is around the time you're talking about this all happening. Mm. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Like what was the path that was possible? Mom. I mean, Mm. I really did. And, um, yeah, I just didn't know there was anything. I mean, the joke, I'm so embarrassed. Oh my gosh, I'm going to tell you something. In high school, the joke with all the girls was, oh, it's not like Calgus is going to help me sweep the floor. And I think of that sometimes. It literally wakes me up at night where I'm like, oh my, why would we talk like that about ourselves? And that's, but that was the joke, which isn't a joke. Yeah, that's the, that's the life that you're being told to live. I mean, yeah, yeah it's a very restrictive yeah. point of view for what's possible. Right. But you somehow broke through that. I mean, for to be the first of your your female cousins to go off to school and to go to UCLA, it wasn't like you mm-hmm. went to community college at a nearby, you know, one town over. Like you left the state. I mean, I that's a really big move. How did that come to pass? So you must have had a real desire, a real goal around that. I did. And I was very scared. Um, you know, again, complicated story. My father lived in LA. Um uh, since I was like a year and a half old. So I I was familiar enough with it that it wasn't quite as scary. It was still scary. Um, and I think I got in, <laughs> I had really good grades, but I do think it was the essay about being raised Mormon and what that was like and how ready I was for something different that got me in. Um, I don't know how many, you know, kids are accepted to UCLA from Utah. I don't think it's many, but I do think that that had a big piece of it. But I also believe that my desire to, I want to say, try something new, but it's so much deeper than that. It's almost hard to articulate the desire to break from what I was told was possible was so strong. And I didn't even know what I was chasing. I mean, I became an English major because somebody told me anyone who can really take something complicated and break it down so someone else can understand it will be incredibly successful. And I was like, all right, teach me how to do that then. And so I chose to be an English major at UCLA, which served me greatly because in this huge public, you know, university, the English department, I had classes with five, six kids. I mean, I was so spoiled and it was just this exquisite education I got that taught me how to break things down so anyone could understand them. And it is a skill, honestly, I use every day. Now, when you went away, was there a plan that you were going back to the Mormon life or was no. this a stepping stone to New York City? Like, did you know this was leaving? That's such a great question. I, I knew I was leaving. Um, I really did. Whether I would end up in LA or New York, I think was still a question. Um, so after I graduated, I spent a year in the south of France where I built houses for the homeless and I worked with handicapped children, both physically and, and learning. Um, and 
boy, did we have an interesting time. And they're the reason I can speak French because people were so um, impatient with them as they were learning. They were so wonderful with me and taught me how how to speak like a native, which is great. I'm the completely illiterate, but I can speak like a native. And it was that it was those moments there with those children um, and building those homes. Uh, there was something about New York City that started to pull. And I think it's the incredible diversity. I think that's what it was, just watching and learning and being with these kids and watching all the people I was working with. They were from all over the world as well. And I think something about that called to me, especially being raised in such a, you know, homogenous environment. I still go back. Every time I go back to Salt Lake, I walk up to you. I'm like, do I know you? Because you look just like that guy. Oh, wait. Do I know? Everyone looks the same and it's, it's really fine. I tease them when I go back. But I didn't want that anymore. And so I think that's where New York City started to pull. What a stark contrast to have that kind of upbringing, like the homages upbringing, to then a UCLA, which is scary, but you have some you know family connection, some familiarity with the area, then to head off to, to France and be with people from all over the world doing volunteer work, and then to go to New York City, which is literally like every kind of person could possibly meet would be there. I mean, it must be... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it is other cultures, right? It's a cultural mm -hmm. shift yeah. that you experience, even though you're here in the States, the way you, you and I were raised were just very different cultural experiences. And then you choose to leave one and explore the other and find what that means to you. And I think that means that it means something different to you than me, because I kind of grew up with it. I grew up an hour outside of New York city. So I don't have an appreciation from New York city the way you do, right? Like it's there. I like visiting it. I decided I don't want to live there. <laughs> like, um, but I didn't have to work so hard to get there. Um, so that's really interesting. And the fact that you are taking what you do to help women today, which we'll get to talking about in a moment, but I, I can see the roots of this, of not wanting people to be limiting themselves, both their limiting beliefs, uh, limiting their choice and limiting their access to resources. Clearly, these are things you're, you have core passion around that. Did you go, I mean, so far you haven't been employed. <laughs> so at what point did you get a J-O-B and, or did you skip that and go right to entrepreneurship? No, no, I did not. And in fact, it was all the jobs I had that led me to yeah. the idea that entrepreneurship was even possible. I mean, here I am, I'm not even supposed to be working, right? The way I was raised, let alone starting my own business and teaching more women how to do that. Um, no, I, my first job, I was a temp at a bank and I said, please don't put me in a room by myself or send me to a bank. And so they did both. And I was in a room by myself in a bank. And um, the head of technology actually came out and said, you're bored, aren't you? And I said, uh-huh. And she said, can you make me a website? And I was like, what? And she threw Photoshop and HTML for dummies on my desk. <laughs> and here come all my math skills and all the formulas and all the things I'd learned. And she ended up hiring me to make websites for hedge funds. I know. And then from there, because I had this newfound tech skill that everybody wanted, I mean, it was 1999 to 2000, where we all thought the world was going to end, um, that I was working there and I was working on computers at financial institutions where things can't break, right? So I was seeing this whole world of understanding, one, the massive amount of wealth that I had no idea existed. I'd never been around that, but also to watch how people treated other people once they had wealth and watching this happen, I was like, oh, I'm not gonna do that when I make money. I'm not gonna do that. Oh, thank you for showing me how to do this um, and how to be great. So I took that learning and then that's when I went to Lifetime Television and I learned that I could use that technology to do really cool things. And one of my very first job there was to create a, a breast cancer petition <laughs> um, that people could sign and send to Congress. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So I can use this for this. 
Um, And then from there, I fell in love with startups. And that's really, I think, where I started to see, wait a second, you can look at the market and see where there's a hole and create something to fill it. I was fascinated by that. I was like, I don't understand because I'd been solving problems my whole life, not recognizing, and this is what I say now, is that you can make a business out of anything. And that was so cool to watch people have a dream or an idea work with me on financial projections and how to make that a reality and then to go pitch it. It was like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. Um, And it really opened my eyes to what was possible. It was really cool. That career trajectory you just described, but being like plucked from the temp temp office uh, by yourself and being thrown a real challenge, like, yeah, you know, that you rose to the occasion and said, okay, I'll figure this out. Uh, I remember 1999, I was in grad school, getting my social master's in social work. Awesome. And I had access to a really beautiful computer lab, like mm. gorgeous, you know, brand new computers, really fast printers, unlimited paper. I remember oh my gosh. that was. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I, whenever I didn't want to do my work, which, you know, Always. I taught myself HTML and started designing GeoCities uh, websites. Um, and then along comes MySpace a few years later yeah. and changed the HTML. So I was then having fun coding my MySpace to like reverse and this and that. It was just, yeah, just for funsies. And I still use those skills. Like yeah. I don't build websites today, but I feel like it's helped me understand how I do certain things in my business. I'm not scared. I actually know enough tech to get in trouble, which is- yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I give myself an hour and then I call for professional help because <laughs> I've learned. But it is a skill though. I mean, I do use it all the time. I use Photoshop all the time. Like if I'm stuck or there's something I wanted to create all of a sudden, I'm like, I always think of her name is Mina. I'm always like, thank you for throwing that book on my desk, Mina. Cause it amazing. really amazing. Life. But you use that skill and then you kept sort of finding new opportunities. You didn't stay mm-hmm. just in, like, you could have just become a web designing person, but you, you didn't do that. You leveraged this. You kept going, you found your way into the startup world and the advocacy world and seeing how technology can help those um, organizations do their work better. And at, at some point though, you leave the comfort and the relative safety and security, although I guess in the days of mergers and acquisitions, it's not really <laughs> the case, but the, the perceived safety, the perceived safety, of, net. Yes. Uh, safety of having a J-O-B and you decide to focus on your own thing what was the precipitating precipitating factor in that? And did you, by that point, feel like you had a network of entrepreneurs? Yeah, no, I didn't have the network of entrepreneurs yet. Um, and I was at IAC, which by the way, to your point, Robbie, about how important it is to have relationships and networking, I got that job because I went to a wedding and one of the top execs at IAC heard me. I don't even know what, God knows, heaven help us what I was actually doing or saying, but he heard something and was like, will you come work for me? Um, and it was at IAC that I really started to notice because IAC is such an incubator for startups and for tech companies. And I was watching this and what had happened actually um, is by now I'd had children um, I never saw them. I was miserable. I was making all the dollars, but I was just not happy. And what I realized is I'd come into my awesome office and there would be two or three people waiting for me when I'd get to my office to talk to me about, look, I need to ask for a raise and I don't know how to do it. Can you help me craft the email? These are not people on my team, by the way, but they had learned that I knew how to communicate well. And then I would have someone else come in and say, I can't get the team to listen to me or I'm having a really hard time with a coworker. How can I work through this? And and then I would have someone else come in. I don't know how to do these financial projections. And I was like, I just want to do this part. 
I just like, I would talk to those people in the morning and then I'd turn around and have to do the rest of my job, which was fine, but not what I wanted to do. And I did not know there was a thing called coaching, but that's what I was doing is I was coaching all these people on how to have great relationships with their colleagues um, and understand their business sectors, right? Because IAC was an incubator, like you had to know your financial projections. You had to know what was happening. And several times we'd have to pitch it to Barry Diller, which was really scary and oddly very fun. But it was this thing that we had to be prepared for that and have our team behind it. And I, there was something about that part of it and watching people get lit up and understanding that they could create a path to this. That's really what happened. And one day while I was at work having coached people and I had to turn around and do the rest of my job, I had this awesome FICA tree in my office because, you know, I was so cool. I had a tree in my office and um, I watched a leaf fall off that tree and I could hear the clock ticking. And I was like, I can't get these seconds back. And I got up and walked out to the dude from the wedding and I said, I need you to fire me. He's like, there's no way. And I was like, no, you can. And I showed him how to restructure. <laughs> I'm like, you can restructure the department. Have like, And he was like, are you out of your mind? I was like, please fire me because if I quit, I'm going to get divorced. So please fire me. And so <laughs> he, it took him a while, but he came around and that's how we, that's how I was able to do this. That that's piece, that, that piece, um, so many good pieces. FICA tree, first of all, <laughs> great visual, the leaf falling. Um, but the piece about not knowing that you were doing coaching, I can deeply relate to this. You can? Yeah. I, I worked in nonprofit. That's where I was before entrepreneurship for 15 years. And uh, I remember there was this like, I don't know, maybe seven, eight year period, maybe longer, um, where I would joke that I'll meet you with my Blackberry in my brain. That's how far along, <laughs> that's how long ago it was. <laughs> I had I a Blackberry. Those. And yeah. I remember being really excited because it was like the newest oh, thing. And then the my best. intern showed up with one and I was like, oh. But, um, <laughs> but I would show up at a coffee shop about a block <laughs> away from my office and I didn't have to be in my office till 10. So I would get there at 8.30 or 9 and I'd meet with somebody. And it was happening, I would say, sometimes twice a week, probably six times a month, unpaid, mm. just people meeting. And I, and I just sort of like whatever it is. And it was business challenges, you know, whether it was career challenges, whether it was life challenges. <laughs> and I didn't understand that that was coaching for the longest time. I, can, I would say sometimes it was like, how can I help you? I'm like, I want to do more of this. And I, that yes. phrase you just said, I want to do more of this. Yes. What this is, I want to do more of this. But yeah, there's been, I mean, I've been doing it for like a, a decade before I finally did it professionally. And I think it's hard to notice that. Um, I have an exercise in my second book about discovering your ideal client. It's a Venn diagram. It's expertise, uh, passion. So expertise being the things you just, you know how to do really well. You've been trained to do, you have experience doing. Passion are the things you just will do for fun and for free because you just like it. And then there's the bottom circle of the then is the um, profit uh, or income and impact. You want, you want to make sure there's money coming in, but also impact being had. And if you can find that sweet spot, the people who want the expertise that you have about something you're passionate about and they're willing to pay you because they see the benefits. I mean, that's amazing. But for a lot of us, we're doing things we're very passionate about. We have some expertise in, but we don't monetize. And that's a hobby. Um, yeah. But it's a huge potential. It's just, it is a hobby until you have that light bulb moment. And it seems like you started to get that and you asked for exit plan. <laughs> you, Please fire me plan. Um, I had a story where I told my mentor, Dory Clark, that I finally had a plan to quit my job. She'd been telling me that was what I needed to do. And it was a four-year plan because I could, I'd been there for almost a decade. I couldn't imagine 
just leaving. Right. And she basically laughed at me and that was not a plan. And then within a month, I called her back and said, okay, I'm giving them eight weeks and I'm giving my notice. But, but like, there's a moment where you just sort of say, okay, I can just do this. Mm. But what was that first thing you were selling? Like, what was the original sort of business plan or... Yeah, what did what did you think? Who are you selling it to? Who were the people that were going to help you make it happen? Yeah. So the very first thing I sold um, was the Money Mindset course. Well, the very first version of the Money Mindset course. There's actually a Money Mindset course that's still for sale on my site, and um, but that was the first thing I I actively wanted to go out there and sell, and it really showed me. I think the reason I stayed in the job so long, right, is I was so scared to say I don't. I don't want this. I want that. And that doesn't have money attached to it yet. It will, but it doesn't yet. And the fear I had around that. Um, and so that's what I started teaching first. And I would do free talks at the library. I would go anywhere I could to start to figure this out because I don't think we quite had the layout we do now. You know, the Marie Forleo's of the world weren't around yet. The Tony Robbins of the world were that weird guy who did infomercials. Like this idea that a human being could go out and share their expertise in such a way that people would pay for it because it would make their lives better. That was still kind of new. Um, and so I, I felt more comfortable at that point selling it as a course and selling it as a training and selling it as teaching. Um, and that's how I started. And what would happen is I would speak or present it or start to talk about it. And people would come up to me and say, I want to hire you. Can you help me with this? And then I'd, I had to come up with a package because, of course, I didn't have one yet. Right. So it would be this whole like, yes, let's do an intensive where I help you figure out what you're here to do. Because I knew that was back to your thing about, you know, your expertise is I knew I could read people so well. I could see, but you're not happy doing that or you want to do this. Um and then from there, that turned into group programs and more coaching and more speaking. Um, and then it sort of snowballed from there. But the very what year, thing, what are that the years? Was, I have to go by my daughter because I was seven months pregnant when I launched. Um, hold, please. She's 13. So that was 2009, 2008, 2009, something like that. Yeah. Oh, right in the middle of a recession. Too. Right in the middle of the recession. And my husband at the time owned a mortgage company. So you can guess how well that went. <laughs> I was like, by the way, Do I don't want to work right now. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. Okay. Seven months pregnant, recession, uh -huh. partner has a mortgage company. Okay. Did you start this as a side hustle? while still employed or did you wait? I did. I launched the website because I was pregnant, right? And it was like dumb for me to not see that through. So um, I did start on the side, but it wasn't side enough. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It was too on the side because I was an executive. I don't I, I don't know how people think they can do that when you're that involved with your day job. It is so challenging. And I did it, but I didn't have a weekend for six months. And then it was like, I'm out of here, right? So um, it took a while, but I had started already selling the course or selling speaking engagements, that sort of thing while I was still working. I would not recommend that, by the way. And women were your target even then? Were, were you yes. clear on that? Yeah. And you know, it's funny, I've taken on probably a handful, I would say maybe, hold on, let me not lie to you right now. Hang on. Probably five um, male clients. And at up to this point, it has been um, husbands. <laughs> so women would work with me. And because I just, I don't believe we're compartmentalized. How we do one thing is how we do everything. And so life bleeds into a lot of my coaching because I truly believe you can do all of the right things in business, right? But 80% of success is mindset. And so even if you're doing everything right, 
it's only 20% strategy and your head's got to be in the right place. And primary relationships will usually play a huge, a huge role in that. Um, and so I would end up, they'd be like, you know, my husband hates his job. Can you help him quit? It'll kind of be like that sort of a thing. I'd be like, sure, send him in. And that, that would be the time if it's a personal recommendation or someone I know. Yeah. It's funny because for my, you know, I'm a virtual event design consultant, but I also am a business growth strategy coach. I'm a mm-hmm. passionate entrepreneur. Love. So um, for, for the coaching work, I tend to work with entrepreneurial women in their 50s and beyond, ready to grow their impact and income through some kind of new revenue stream. But then there's always a parenthetical and some good men. I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, and, and a few good men. Um, because my it. marketing is what it is. And if, if a man like responds, um, I, that's the kind of person I want to work with. It's right. Because not, it's not also not all women would fit either. Like, so it's just like, there's a certain brand you put out there and people respond and you get really clear on who you want to attract. Mm. And you're very, I mean, I feel like that's very dialed in right now. It takes a long time. Um, I'm curious as you've built up your network, I mean, cause you, you have a really interesting work history of the various <laughs> things you've done. You've been in a lot of different sectors over time. Mm-hmm. I'm at some point you sort of built up your, you know, entrepreneurship circle as well. But I, when I think about networking, you've got the like, you know, inner circle of people that, you know, you're going to stay in touch with or, or easily, you know, pick back up again with, but then that second and third tier out the people that you might see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago, but it's been a while. I should preface this by saying these are people you enjoy. Yes. I'm always curious how you might go about nurturing and sustaining those kinds of connections. Those like, I guess you might call them weaker ties any habits, philosophies, or practices? Yes. You know, the, said CTO from Ketchup Moment, um, he and I still meet. Um, he was employee number one. I was employee number two. That was always the joke. Um, and he and I meet quarterly. And the name of our meeting is Sarah and Joel Change the Conversation. <laughs> it's like what we do because we're constantly looking at what else does the market need? What's happening in the world? How can we be helpful? And I love that. And he is somebody I could not see forever and pick it up in two seconds and start talking again. Um, and then I have another one from IAC as well, who we meet probably once a year. We're meeting next month. I love that. So I think what it is in those special relationships, because there are some, there are always people you get to connect with or bump into that are so special. And um, with those, I find having some sort of pattern or some sort of set meeting time really works. Um, That Joel and I had, it's the first Saturday of every quarter, right? Like it's just sort of set. Um, And then, you know, Raphael and I meet every November. And I think those, those sorts of things just, they boost your spirits and they remind you, um, because I think in entrepreneurship, I can get lonely. And so I think it just reminds you how many people are out there in the world who are brilliant, who are doing amazing things. Um, and then they're connected to people. And inevitably, one of us ends up introducing the other to someone after our quarterly or yearly conversations. It always comes up of like, oh, I've got this person I can introduce you. Oh, you should know this person. Or, oh my God, I, this guy just started. Or this woman just did this. And I just think that is so special and so important. And so allowing each relationship to sort of have its own circadian rhythm, I think is important, but also seeking it, like finding that, looking out for that. Some people really have a hard time with that request. You know, they, the word mentor comes to mind when you're describing these relationships, right? Uh, sometimes a little beyond peer accountability. It's, these are people that you look up to and you learn from. And they're afraid to either, they're like, how do I find mentors? Or I found somebody, but I'm afraid to ask them. People are afraid to be asked to be mentors because it's loaded. And so it sounds a lot more casual the way you're describing it. And yet there's a rhythm to it. Um, and that you, 
I think you were being thoughtful and purposeful in developing that. It didn't just happen. Um, beyond these two connections that are sort of happening in their own rhythm, are there any other habits, philosophies, practices that help you stay in touch? Yes. So one of my others that I love to teach people is once a month, I'll go to the very bottom of my text list in my phone and I'll text the bottom three people that I haven't spoken to. I love that. Uh, for those of us who are entrepreneurs, that can be very revenue generating. That's not the only reason to do it though, but it really can. It's really surprising what can happen from those. Um, so that's once a month. And then daily, I do have a daily practice. Um, and this isn't so much for networking, but I've found it to be incredibly, um, effective in having me feel connected and in finding mentors and people around me that I really enjoy being with. I think it's important who we have in our sandbox playing with us in the in the playground um, is I literally ask who needs me today. And it's so weird what happens. And I'll get three names as the first three names that pop into my head. And sometimes I feel it's appropriate to email that person and just say, hi, just, you know, you popped into my head this morning and I wanted to say hi and see how you're doing a text, a phone call or an email to those three. And that is a daily practice. Who needs me? Oh my gosh. That's really powerful. It's such a reframe. Um, it's not who can I get something from? Who do I need to follow up with? Who do I need to pester? Right. Like there's a lot of other sort of ways you can ask the like, what are the three people I should talk to? There's these the have to kind of waves, you know, mm. shoulds and have tos, but who needs me? Um, it's just a beautiful, you have a lot of really I, I like the framing you're using. I, I feel like language is really important because it's how we talk to ourselves, it's how we talk to the universe, right? So mm. putting that out there is gonna change even the names that come to mind, but also how you feel about what you do next with the names that come to mind yeah. as I'm so much sure. And um, that usually builds us into a daily practice. How did that start? Like it's, that seems very purposeful again, but like, where's the origin story of that? Yeah. You know, I think actually um, I am trying to remember cause you, I don't know. I've been doing it for so long. Um, it might've been Brenner Bouchard. And I feel bad saying that without being sure, but I think that's why he's one of the first people I read where I, kind of the, the, the personal coaching went into business coaching. Um, and so I think that's where I got that. I wish I could tell you more assertively. Um, but it became a really strong daily practice for me during the pandemic, um, which is when I invented Coffee with Coach. Um, the second we were all in lockdown, it was a Wednesday. And that Friday I had just this really strong like, hey, people are going to freak out, go live. I was like, okay. So I went live every morning um, for 15 minutes at the beginning. By the end of the pandemic, it was an hour a day that I would go live and answer any questions anybody had on the interwebs. Um, but that that beginning, it started with, all right, here's my morning ritual. I'm going to give it to you so you don't lose your mind. <laughs> and that was when that got really cemented because now people were calling me to it. Like, who needs me today? Who needs me today? Who needs me today? Um, and that's when it really became, so 2020 was when it was like absolutely every single day before that. It was, it was almost every day, but it wasn't quite as ingrained in my brain the way it is now. There is something about teaching something to make yeah. um, an idea more concrete. 100%. I have had that happen so many times. So interesting yeah. parallel here. Um, mm. So pre-pandemic, I was teaching people how to network at conferences. And I'd spent a decade working to be recognized as, that, as an expert in that area. A talk that I did for 10 years, a book, a coaching program, a TEDx. I am poised to be an overnight success 10 years in the making. And then March 2020 comes along and there's no such thing as in-person anymore. We're no longer going, we're not at events, we're on events. Yes. Um, <laughs> and um, I accepted it really quickly and um, uh, with some support from my peer mastermind on the 9th, um, I 
uh, oh, and the, I guess the 11th. On the 12th, I wrote and shared nine ways to network in a pandemic. And then on the 13th, I decided I was going to do one of those, which was to host a virtual happy hour. And that is my first virtual happy hour was that day. And I'm still hosting it. I'm I still love running. it. Yeah. No more bad zoom.com folks. <laughs> still so doing cool. it. Um, oh my God. Yeah. I, I think like you, I was like, well, how do I show up and add value? People are going to need to come together. And I didn't, you know, didn't know that I had expertise in this area that was special, but and people were like, oh yeah, we need you that. Did, so, Bobby, you did. Very cool. Um, I love so us. Cool. And I, I, you're a person I'm so glad we got introduced. Um, Shout out to Julie Fry and her company. Um, they they kind of helped us connect through her podcast placement company. And uh, I want to know, like a year from now, if we cross paths again, and I suddenly remember, oh my gosh, that a year ago is when I interviewed you. I'm gonna, of course, want to ask you like what you've been up to, what are you celebrating, and that's my question for you. When you're looking ahead to a year from now. What are you most looking forward to? What are the good news things you're going to tell me about a year from now? Oh my gosh. It's so weird because I'm so work-centered. Robbie, I'm going to sound so boring, but I'm super excited. I've just launched something called the Abundance Academy. And I'm so, I, I like, I don't know, Robbie, if you have dreams of things you've always wanted to do and then you do them and you're like, oh my gosh, today's the day I'm doing the thing I said I was always going to do. Um, so I've launched that quite quietly, invite only, and that's going to open up at the beginning of next year. So I would hope by the end of this year, we have brought the concept of abundance, not in the woo-woo, oh, I'm going to manifest at the million dollars will fall on my head. Not like that kind, but the the kind where we put it with our feet on the ground and we put plans in place and people really start kicking some assets, I like to say. Um, so I would be super excited about that. Um, I might know where my son's going to college, so that would make me super excited. Um, what else will be happening? I think I think those are the big things. Those are the big things for me that would that would just make my socks roll up and down. Wow. Those are good things to celebrate. I can't wait to celebrate with them with you. Um, I love the term abundance. I love the way you're describing it. For me, I talk about the philosophy of abundance and I compare it to the metaphor of giving rides to the airport. Because if you become known as the kind of person who gives rides to the airport, you're going to get a ride when you need one. And it's probably going to be from someone that you've never driven, but they see you as the kind of person who who gives rides mm. to the airport. and They want to help you. And so the way I try to show up in the world is, is with that. That's like my idea of networking is to be giving. And of course, there are people who are givers back and you always pay more attention to supporting them. But, you know, being, being wary of the takers, but also being like, you know what? Knowledge is not going to deplete me. Sharing information, sharing resources, it's different than money and time. So I love that you're going to help mm -hmm. other people really embrace that. This is actually the focus of an NPR interview that came out that I did um, recently, uh, was really about reframing networking. And my book is called Croissants versus Bagels. And that came up in the, in the interview. Um, bagels being those tight clusters and the croissant, if you make space and invite other people in when you're physically at events. Um, but it's also a philosophy about how you sort of share and create space. So I'm totally on board for what you're doing. I can't That's wait to spread gorgeous. the word about it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love for people to know how to find you and follow your work. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you to you. This has been absolutely wonderful. I always love when you have a great, beautiful conversation. So thank you for being a croissant today and for inviting me into your world. It was so generous and kind. Uh, for anybody who wants to get to know me more, actually know what the face that is attached to this voice looks like, you can um, catch me at sarahwalton.com. And also we have a YouTube channel um, and my favorite show there is called Sarah Uncut where I just flip my camera on and heaven help us, we never know what I'm going to say. It's really fun and there's lots of good business tips in there. Um, 
And those would be the places I think you can see me hanging out the most. Brilliant. We'll put all the links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 311. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's overcome challenges to achieve success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their entrepreneurial journey that they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.